The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. In light of the fact that this is our Recovenanting Sunday, we'll be temporarily pausing our journey through 1 Peter, Peter and looking instead at Matthew 9, 35, 38. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to be gathered around your word today with the opportunity to immerse ourselves in it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and at work in our midst, causing the truths and teachings that we encounter here to find a place in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the distinctive features about our church is that we like to go passage by passage through books of the Bible. That's what we believe is best for the steady diet of a healthy church. Uh, so, for example, right now we're going through the book of 1 Peter. But since this is our Recovenanting Sunday, I thought it'd be good to just momentarily push pause on that journey through 1 Peter and instead turn our attention to Matthew chapter 9. This morning is a great opportunity for us to not only celebrate what God's done in the past in bringing our church together and blessing us the way he has, but it's also an opportunity for us to take stock of where our church is in the present and even to spend some time considering where God would have us go in the future and what he'd have us focus on because it's so... uh, easy for us to start drifting and diverging from the mission that Jesus has given us. And at first, we might only diverge from that mission by a single degree. But as we continue that divergent course, we end up further and further away from the place where God would have us be. Think about it like this. If an airplane is flying somewhere and is off course by just a single degree, that might not seem like a big deal at first. I mean, if the airplane is supposed to be going this way and it's instead going this way, that certainly doesn't seem like a big deviation at all. However, as the distance that airplane travels increases, well, the one degree divergence ends up having a pretty significant impact on where the plane ends up. After 100 yards, the plane would be off its target by about 5.2 feet. After a mile, it would be off by 92.2 feet. Then after traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles, it would be off by six miles. 
traveling from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., it would end up 42.6 miles off course, which really isn't even in D.C. It's on the other side of Baltimore. And then if you wanted to make this even more fun, you could turn that plane into a rocket ship or a, a space shuttle and think about it going to the moon. <laughs> if that space shuttle was just one degree off, it would miss the moon by 4,169 mi miles. Going to the sun, it would be off by 1.6 million miles. And traveling to the nearest star other than the sun, it would be off by a whopping 441 billion miles. So I'm sure you get the idea, right? The longer that plane or shuttle continues its divergent course, even if the divergence is just a single degree, the further away it's going to end up from its intended destination. And so that's why we have to make sure that our church stays on course and continues with a laser beam focus on the mission that God's given us. Even a one-degree divergence from that mission will eventually have devastating consequences for our church, as we can see in many churches throughout our society these days. And it'll bring us to the place eventually where we're not even really being faithful to Jesus at all. And so that's what I'd like us to think about this morning. How faithfully are we pursuing the mission God's given us? Are there any course corrections that we need to make? What specifically do we need to focus on this upcoming year? Now, one thing that we can be grateful, I would say immensely grateful for, is everything that God has done in and through our church, even this past year. I mean, there are so many encouraging signs that God has been at work. And of course, many of the things that God does in people's lives are pretty difficult to measure and quantify. I would say the majority of the iceberg is under the surface, right? The majority of things God does, are, are, are it's not the kind of stuff you can count. But there are several things that we can keep track of relatively easily. And what we've seen this past year is very encouraging. For example, our Sunday morning worship attendance, uh, the average attendance has grown from 111 people to 141 people, which is an increase of around 27% the past year. Uh, our average giving has grown from 22400 a month to now around 31600 a month, which is an increase of around 41%. In a single year. And the number of people serving as volunteers, as you heard, in some official and regular capacity, uh, grew from 75 that we recognized last year to now, as you heard, 104, which is an increase of around 39%. Uh, we also baptized 12 people and added 33 people as new members. And uh, not only that, the building renovations that we've been pursuing for a couple of years now uh, are finally just about complete with a few doors and things like that, other odds and ends that need to be done. But for the most part, they're finished, and hopefully we'll have the new carpeting and new seating in this room in a couple of months. So there are many things that we can praise God for this past year, ways he has been incredibly gracious to our church. And as a result, our church is now, I would say, in a more comfortable position than we've ever been in before. 
I mean, some of you probably remember before we acquired this building a couple of years ago, how we were meeting in a, an elementary school on those hard metal chairs and then in a hotel, right? Uh, having to set up and tear down every single Sunday. All of our stuff that we use for Sunday morning fit into four plastic bins, right? All, everything, children's ministry, worship, the whole thing fit into four plastic bins for our Sunday morning stuff uh, because it had to, right? We didn't have a, a space of our own. And yet now, of course, things are a lot more comfortable. Yet at the same time, this comfortable situation can also have some unintended consequences. Now, there are certainly many advantages to the blessings we've enjoyed, but there are also some very real dangers. And one of those dangers that I believe we need to be especially mindful of is allowing ourselves to being uh, lulled into a state of spiritual and evangelistic complacency in the midst of our church's comfortable situation. You know, it's very possible for us to become so comfortable in the midst of all these things, especially the renovated building, that yet we end up losing sight of the urgency of the mission Jesus has called us to. And that's why I believe the Lord has laid on my heart Matthew 9, 35-38 as the passage for us to look at this morning. Uh, this passage has actually been on my heart for probably about five or six months now precisely because of the danger that I just described of us becoming evangelistically complacent in the midst of our comfortable situation. And by evangelistically complacent, I simply mean losing our zeal and passion for the task of evangelism or sharing the gospel. So look with me again at what this passage says. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Think about the metaphor Jesus uses in those last two verses. The metaphor of a harvest. As I consider that metaphor, I, I can't help but be struck by the incredible confidence it conveys. Like it communicates such a positive outlook, doesn't it? According to Jesus, there are multitudes of people all around us who are spiritually ripe and ready for the harvest. They're ready to put their faith in Jesus and be rescued from their sins. And Jesus also says something similar in John 4:35. He tells his disciples, "Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, they're ready to be harvested. And so often, we allow ourselves to believe the lie 
that the only kinds of people around us are people who have you know, no real interest in Jesus and who are somewhat hardened to the gospel. As a result, we imagine that even if we tell them about Jesus, they still probably wouldn't listen. And yet Jesus says, that's simply not true. Now, even though there are, admittedly, many people who are indeed closed off to the gospel, there are many others who are actually ready to embrace the gospel. In fact, there are countless multitudes all around us, Jesus says, who are ready to embrace the gospel. The main obstacle, as we see back in our main passage, is that, well, there's a labor shortage. There simply aren't enough laborers to bring in the massive harvest that's out there. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, to be honest with you, my expectation uh, would have been for Jesus to tell his disciples to pray for a greater harvest. It would have been to, to pray for more people to be ripe for the harvest and receptive to the gospel. And that's certainly a need. But according to Jesus, it's apparently not the most pressing need. Instead, the most pressing need is the need for more laborers. And that, I believe, is the main idea of this passage. The greatest and most urgent need this world has is the need for more gospel laborers. Again, the greatest and most urgent need this world has is the need for more gospel laborers. And friends, that's what I believe our church needs as well. As I mentioned earlier, it is so encouraging to see how the Lord has been gracious to our church and has blessed our church so abundantly this past year. I mean, praise God for that. But I can't help but wonder, what portion of the people who attend here on Sundays and who are especially members of the church are actually true gospel laborers. You know what percentage of our people have shared the gospel with someone, let's say in the past month, or even in the past year? I'd be much more interested in the answer to that question than in a lot of the other metrics that we track. Because... Let me be clear here. We're not just looking for more numbers here. We're looking for faithful gospel laborers. We're, we're looking for people whose desire isn't just to you know, sit on a pew Sunday morning, but to actually be missionaries, to embrace and embody Christ's calling to be missionaries in our day-to-day -day lives throughout the week. Are those the kind of people our church is attracting? Or even better, the kind of people our church is producing. It's very interesting to observe the context of this prayer request that Jesus gives here in these verses of praying for more laborers. As some of you know, the chapter divisions in the Bible aren't actually from God, uh, but are simply elements that people inserted for the sake of convenience. 
And so that means that some of the chapter divisions in the Bible may not actually be the best places to divide uh, the biblical text. And I believe that is uh, certainly the case for the chapter division that occurs right after these verses. And so let me read to you these verses we've been looking at, followed by the next two verses that are technically in chapter 10, but I'm going to show those without the chapter division or any verse divisions. It says, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. And it lists the the 12 apostles. And so Jesus, look at what he does here. He tells his disciples to pray for more laborers and is then like, hey guys, guess what? You're the laborers, right? You know those people that I asked you to pray that the Lord would raise up? Well, it's actually you. (laughs) I'm sending you out to go and do ministry. And I believe that's the message. I mean, we're not included among those technically Jesus was originally speaking with, but I I believe that's the message Jesus has for us today as well. Jesus is calling you, if you're a Christian, to be a laborer who helps bring in the harvest. You know, I've heard it said that Jesus doesn't want the church to be a cruise ship. He wants it to be a battleship. And I wholeheartedly agree uh, with that sentiment. Uh, We're not here to sit back and relax, but rather to engage in the mission that Jesus has given us and to wage war against the enemy. So yeah, not a cruise ship, but a battleship. Yet I recently heard a pastor suggest something even better than that. He said, what if we took the analogy one step further? What if we said we want our church to be an aircraft carrier? Because battleships fight their battles right near the ship. Yet that's the last place an aircraft carrier wants to fight its battles. An aircraft carrier is designed to equip planes and then launch out those planes to take the battle to the enemy. Uh, I was actually reading one article that said an aircraft carrier is capable of launching one plane every 25 seconds. So that's the kind of church that that we want to be. Certainly not a cruise ship, and yet not even a battleship, but rather an aircraft carrier that's continually equipping people and sending them out Sunday after Sunday after Sunday out into the, the mission field to be missionaries in their day-to-day lives throughout the week. And even beyond that, you know, my prayer is that we can actually be sending people out, not just during the week, but sending people out to plant additional churches. Sending people out as cross-cultural missionaries to take the gospel all around the world. So understand, that's our mission here. We didn't do all those nice renovations to the building just to turn this place into a cruise ship. 
We did them so that this building can be a more effective tool. That's all it is. A more effective tool for gospel impact. That's what we're pursuing here. Not personal comfort, but gospel impact. Like We want to be that aircraft carrier. We want our Sunday services to be, in essence, missionary training meetings, equipping you, training you up to take the gospel to your families, to your neighborhoods, to your workplace, to school, and even to the ends of the earth. That's why we recite the Great Commission after at the conclusion of our worship service, right? It's no accident. That's why we, you know, we put our mission statement with these kinds of things on, on the front of our bulletin just about every Sunday. We are here to train missionaries. And the driving force behind all of this is ultimately our passion for the glory of God. Notice how our mission statement begins. It says, we want to glorify God. By doing the things we do. We recognize, first of all, that God is worthy of all glory simply by virtue of who he is. And we also remember the love that God has shown us in the gospel. God loved us so much. He sent his own son to bear the judgment our sins deserved. God the Father's wrath came down on Jesus so it wouldn't have to come down on us. And the result of Jesus' death and then subsequent resurrection from the dead is that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him. It's a message that we call the gospel. And as Christians, we're so grateful for what God's done for us in the gospel and the grace that that he's shown to us. And we want to devote our lives to seeking his glory. Like we want to do all we can to bring glory to the one who saved us. And so that's the ultimate reason for us engaging in the mission that God's given us of being gospel labors. It's all about the glory of God. Or chiefly, I should say, about the glory of God, because there is another complementary reason as well. Look at our main passage in verse 36. It says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. (laughs) That's what led Jesus, to tell his disciples to pray for more labors. He saw the crowds of people who were without the truth of the gospel and utterly helpless to to save themselves. And as the verse says, he had compassion for them. The word translated as compassion refers to something that's felt in the innermost part of a person's being. In its most literal sense, uh, the word actually refers to a person's intestines or bowels because that was the part of the body, uh, strangely enough, that people back in ancient times associated with deep, strong emotions. So whereas we might say that I felt something deep in my heart, (laughs) 
They, back in ancient times, would likely say, I felt something deep in my bowels. And, you know, when you think about it, I guess there's some truth to that. I'm sure there have been times in your life where you have felt something so strongly your, your stomach just like tightened up a bit, almost like a punch to the gut, right? We have that expression in modern day English. It felt like a punch to the gut. I remember seeing a very, honestly, it was a very disturbing picture in the news a year or two ago of a dead child who was a refugee and whose body was washed up on the shore of the Mediterranean. And uh, that picture was so disturbing to me that I could feel it in my stomach. It, it was literally a gut-wrenching picture. And we see here in verse 36 that that's the extent to, Jesus, to, to which Jesus was affected by the sight of the multitudes of people. He had compassion on them. He was so moved by their plight that he felt it in the very core of his being. So what about you, if, if you're a Christian? Is that the way you feel toward those who are far from God? Do, do you have that same burden for them? That same compassion that you feel in the innermost part of your being? I mean, does the thought of them, like even now being headed toward a Christless eternity, does that burden you and grieve you to such a degree that you even find yourself weeping for them at times? Let me tell you something. The closer you grow to God, the more you care about those who are far. You know, a lot of times, uh, I think people can imagine they're growing closer to God simply because their level of Bible knowledge is increasing. But that's not necessarily the case. If you're really growing closer to God, that's marked by you becoming a different person. Like That's marked by your heart progressively becoming more and more aligned with God's heart. And that involves having a deep care and compassion for those who aren't yet Christians. So, again, the closer you grow to God, the more you care about those who are far from him. And then, of course, that care is going to manifest itself in some very practical ways. It's going to lead you to start doing some very practical things in an effort to spread the gospel. And so one of the habits that I try to practice each month is to set aside time. And I, I do this. I actually, I can't remember the last time I didn't do this. But every month I try to set aside some time to prayerfully consider certain questions. Uh, questions that help me evaluate my heart and examine my life and consider whether I'm really firing on all cylinders uh, when it comes to evangelism. And uh, I actually ask myself these questions in place of my normal morning quiet time for that day. That's how beneficial uh, I found them to be. And so I'd actually like to share some of these questions with you uh, with the hope uh, that these questions will 
be as helpful for you as they've been for me. So here they are, what we might call five uh, questions for personal reflection. First, how consistently have I been praying for those who aren't yet Christians? This is really where it all begins. Having a heart for those who are far from God begins with praying for them by name on a very regular basis, hopefully even every day. Like if you're not praying for people by name to be saved, then I would just have to wonder how deep your concern for them really goes. And second, how consistently have I been praying for evangelistic opportunities? You know, it's amazing how many times we talk about a lack of opportunities to share the gospel, and yet we're not praying for opportunities to share the gospel. And it's one of those things that seems kind of obvious once you think about it, but for whatever reason, the thought just never occurs to us many times. Like, hey, maybe I should actually be praying for more opportunities to talk about Jesus. And many times what God does, I've noticed, is that he opens our eyes to opportunities that were actually there all along, right under our noses, but that we never noticed before. Then third, is there someone who isn't yet a Christian that I could invite over for dinner or another activity? In most cases, I would say sharing the gospel with someone involves building a relationship with that person and inviting them over for dinner. Practicing hospitality is a wonderful way to do that. And there are other things besides dinner that we've found helpful as well. Uh, For example, many of you know that uh, one tradition our family has is to have our neighbors over for a Christmas party every year. And that's something we've done for a number of years now, and we'll do it again in uh, early December. And so in just a couple of weeks, I will be going out with some containers of home-baked Christmas cookies to about a dozen neighbors, and uh, along with an invitation uh, that I bring to our Christmas party. And I'll just be inviting them. Several neighbors I already know, and we had one or two that moved in pretty recently. Actually, one that just moved in about two or three weeks ago. So we'll be uh, making contact again with them. And uh, we will be inviting not only some neighbors, but also a few um, people who aren't yet Christians that we know from beyond our street, and also some Christians as well, Uh, even some Christians uh, from our church to help us in connecting with all these people. So some of you may be getting an invitation to that Christmas party. And our goal, of course, is to connect with those who are potentially far from God and to build those relationships. And we plan on inviting them to our Christmas Eve service and even hopefully inviting them um, when the time is right to an evangelistic Bible study or other opportunities to connect. And here's the thing I want you to notice about this. This is something that just about anyone can do. You don't need a seminary degree to do this, right? Just about any Christian can make a deliberate effort to connect relationally with people who aren't yet Christians and uh, have a Christmas party or even a simple dinner with them, just inviting another person over for dinner. Uh, Other ideas that we found helpful include an Easter egg hunt around Easter time, uh, being thoughtful 
about who you invite to your children's birthday parties, if, you're, if you have young children, or uh, just a simple cookout uh, during the summer, maybe on Memorial Day or Fourth of July or something like that. Then moving on to the fourth question, is there anyone that I could invite to participate in an evangelistic Bible study? You know, you probably heard me mention evangelistic Bible studies a few moments ago. And in case you're wondering what those are, those are simply gatherings in which Christians and non-Christians come together to study what the Bible says about Jesus. Uh, They can include either several Christians and several non-Christians together or just one Christian and one non-Christian together. And it usually works best to meet once a week for about an hour each time and for a defined number of weeks, usually four to eight weeks, uh, is what we recommend, and to have a clear end date for that. And if you would like any more information about how you can get one of those started, I would love, uh, just ask people from the membership class yesterday, I would love to be helpful for you um, in, in any way I can in getting one of those started. And then the final question that I ask myself is, do I need to reduce the other things I'm doing in order to give myself more time and availability for these evangelistic efforts. You know, it is amazing how quickly our schedules become so filled up with so many good things, good things, but that we end up neglecting the best and most important things. So this means that maybe it's a possibility there are some things you need to stop doing in order to be more faithful in evangelistic outreach. You know, I've heard it said that the devil doesn't have to destroy you. He just has to distract you. And that is certainly true when it comes to a lot of things, but in in particular, evangelism, right? The devil doesn't have to destroy you spiritually to keep you from being fruitful in reaching out. He just has to distract you with 101 other things that keep you from being focused on the main thing. So if you're a Christian, I hope these questions are helpful uh, for you as you seek to become a missionary in your day-to-day life. Or in the words of Jesus in our main passage, a laborer in the harvest field. And just know, guys, that our desire as a church is to come alongside you and to encourage you and equip you so that you can be the most fruitful gospel laborer that you can possibly be. All, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because understand, brothers and sisters, that there is a massive crop of people. Massive crop. All around us who even now are ripe for the harvest. We see it in the Bible. There are countless people in Bethel Park and the other surrounding communities who are ready to embrace Jesus. The only thing they need is for someone to share the gospel with them. Will you be one of those gospel labors? And as we think about the this upcoming year as a church, I think our vision needs to be for gospel laborers and gospel impact. With the understanding that the former 
leads to the latter. If we want to see real gospel impact, well, that involves having people step up as gospel laborers. And as we look at these verses here, Jesus is very clear about how we can see that happen. Like, we don't have to guess about what our next step should be or have some kind of a brainstorming session or strategy meeting to talk about it. Jesus actually tells us here. He says to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, God's will is to do incredible things for the advance of the gospel, but not to do those things in a vacuum. His will is to do those things in response to our prayers. In a certain manner of speaking, we might even say that God's waiting for us to pray before he opens up the floodgates of heaven and rains down untold showers of blessing all over us. Like he is waiting. He's ready to bless our church with gospel labors and gospel impact this upcoming year. But he's waiting for us to pray and to persevere in prayer until he releases those blessings. So before we go any further this morning, I'd like to invite Steve Leonard, Dan Kim, and Adina Kasky to come up here on the the platform and uh, to lead us in prayer. You know, Jesus only gives one specific command in this passage. And that command is very simple. It's a command to pray. And so that's what we want to do. I've asked Steve to pray that God would give us his heart for those who are far from him. Then I've asked Dan to pray that God would raise up laborers from our church for the harvest fields all around us. And then finally, I've asked Dinah to pray that God would raise up cross-cultural missionaries from this church for the harvest fields all around the world. And so we'll go in that order. First, Steve, and then Dan, and then Adina, lastly. So, Steve, please lead us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thirsty for more of you and more of your Holy Spirit. We're thirsty for your living water of life, for your anointing on our lives, and on our ministry to others in your name. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow living waters. Please increase our thirst for you, for your word, and for your will to be done, as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please keep our hearts humble before you, and please strengthen our commitment to you. We want our heart's desire to be for you and above all other desires. We want more of you, Father God. Please strengthen our spirit. Help us know your presence and experience your power in our lives as never before. Please shine your light through us to reach the lost and dying world around us for your glory. 
Please shower us with your blessings so that we can share them with others and so that we can be a blessing to you. In the abundant name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which comforts us, refines us, and gives us strength to obey your will. We pray that you would continue to raise up more people from our church to labor in the harvest fields all around us. We look around at our community and we see people who are lost and perishing without you. People who are lonely, full of fear, without hope. People who are in great need of a savior. For those of us who are sequestered within Christian community, I pray that today's message would be a wake-up call to obey your command to go and make disciples. For those of us who fear persecution, I pray that we would be encouraged by your promise that the kingdom of heaven is ours through persecution for your sake, as Jesus told us to rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And for those of us who labor, give us more courage and more strength to run with endurance the race you have set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray that you would pour out your spirit abundantly here in this community, uh, in the South Hills, that we might declare your steadfast love by morning, your faithfulness by night, and that many, many more would come to know you as Savior and God. In Jesus' name. O great God of highest heaven, great are your works, and glorious and majestic are your deeds. Your righteousness endures forever. We come to you this morning confessing that we are a forgetful people. We forget that you alone are the one we have to hope in. We are short-sighted. We are selfish. And we forget how great a gift our salvation is. We fill our lives with things that busy us and dull us to the reality that there are millions that do not know the good news of Jesus. We come to you now in repentance asking for you to change our hearts, open our eyes to the work you have for us to do in your kingdom. More specifically, we come to you today asking for you to make us sensitive to your voice and your calling to some of us from within this very congregation. We long for you to call some among us to church planting, to cross-cultural and international mission work. We want to see your name made great and your kingdom to come in places where the name of Jesus cannot or has not even been spoken. Lord, would you make us a church who sends workers out into the harvest to hard places, to places where persecution is certain. Give us faith like Moses, who regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Make us a church who sees your kingdom, your harvest, and even suffering for that harvest as of greater value than all the treasures and comforts of Pittsburgh. Give us faith to get up and go, not fearing whatever difficulties that might entail. Make us a people who would see ourselves blessed to identify with Christ in his suffering. And like Moses who persevered because he saw him, you, God, who are invisible, Make us also persevere. We ask these things by faith, knowing we can only walk this way by a work of the Holy Spirit. They are not natural to us. 
We ask for you to grow us to be more like Christ, the ever-faithful one who became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our hearts, in our church, across the earth, and in heaven above. Amen. That may very well be the most significant thing we have done this entire morning. So, and hopefully we can, that's not the end of it, that we can continue to devote ourselves in prayer uh, for these things until we see God release those blessings on our church this upcoming year.